Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, I've got good news for you today, and I guess non-gospel related good news. That is, this is my last week up here preaching for a while, and uh, I'm glad because it's been a very, uh, I, I try to Often when I pick topics, I like to pick ones that are intellectually challenging, and uh, this one kind of went overboard. It's been a very, very difficult uh, study, enjoyable, beneficial to me, trustfully for you, but I'm looking forward to uh, getting back in my seat and letting Justin get up here and do some of the preaching. So no regrets, just looking forward to that, sitting back and relaxing, not having that pressure throughout the week, I got to get this done, I got to get this done. So anyway, uh, what we're going to look at today is Psalm 72. You know, the word of prayer, then I'll read it, uh, some explanation, and we'll, we'll dive uh, right into it. So let's have a word of prayer before we begin, brethren. Our Father, we are thankful that we have this opportunity to open up your scripture. We thank you for the word that you've given us, that it is true, it is faithful, that it is powerful. Father, it's not simply a, a word on a page, but through your spirit uh, working within it, you make uh, Christ alive to us. And we pray that you would do that to us today, Father. Show us something of his glory, of his majesty, even in this uh, what seems to be a very strange, uh, difficult psalm. Let Christ be uh, shown forth in all of his beauty, all of his glory. We thank you for these things and ask them in his name, amen. I'll begin with reading the psalm. If you open your Bibles to Psalm 72, if you have one. It's titled, The Reign of the Righteous King. A psalm of Solomon. Uh, It starts this way. Give give your king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Let them fear while, you, while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts and let all the kings bow down before him. All the nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from the oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live. And may the gold of Sheba be given to him. And let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit wave like the cedars of Lebanon. And may those from the city flourish like the vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all the nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. 
amen and amen, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, the last a couple of weeks, we've been looking at Psalm 110, and we spent one, one week looking at the psalm, uh, basically exegeting it, trying to get an idea of what it meant to the people uh, that it was written to, written for, uh, the Jews at uh, the time of David. And then we looked at how it was used in the uh, Old Test- New Testament. Once uh, we, we, at the first sermon, we did maybe 15 minutes on looking at Acts 2. Then the week after that, we looked at how Paul uses Psalm 110 in the, uh, his prayer to the Ephesians, the first prayer to the Ephesians. And the thing about Psalm 110 is that it's used 15 times in the New Testament we mentioned. And going to Psalm 72 is going from one extreme to the other. Like I said, Psalm 110 is used 15 times. Guess how many times Psalm 72 is used in the New Testament, is quoted by the New Testament writers? Zero. None at all. So there was a challenge here to try to figure out, well, how to read Christ into this, how to find Christ in this passage when the Old Testament writer, New Testament writers didn't refer to them at all. And I think we'll, we'll, hopefully we'll see that as we progress through this. We'll see Christ is very, very clear in here, just as clear as if he'd been quoted by the New Testament writers. So what we'll do is what we've always done, we'll spend some time exegeting this passage, explaining what it meant uh, to those who it was originally written to during the... Uh, we believe the reign of David, actually the end of David's reign. Uh, probably this was one of the last psalms he wrote. And then we will look at how this relates to Christ, how we can find Christ in this passage. It starts out basically, uh, this for an outline, uh, this psalm is, uh, there's five different parts to it. Uh, it kind of falls into nice uh, five patterns. Um, it starts out a prayer. Uh, and there are two parts to this prayer. Uh, first of all, a prayer uh, that God will give righteous judgment to this king so that his rule will bring justice to everybody, to the whole world. Uh, there's a second group of petitions that center around the idea of the king's dominion, that his dominion will extend uh, so that the king's rule will bring justice uh, to everybody, not just one group of people, but it will bring justice to everybody, that all the nations uh, from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth will, will honor this king and bring gifts to him and give him homage. Uh, then also, uh, there's a, a small section from verses 12 to 14 that attest to the, the king's worthiness of this honor. Why is the king worthy of such honor? This goes from a, a petition to a declaration or asking a question, what makes him worthy of these blessings? And then it goes back to the prayer again. He, he now goes from a de- declaration to petition, uh, praying for peace and prosperity over this king's realm And then it finally, it closes with a doxology, a praise, a blessing to the God of Israel. So let's look at the first group of of verses, verses 1 through 7. I'll read through them and we'll uh, examine them in a little bit of detail. Uh, It says this, Give your king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, crush the oppressor. Let them fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish 
and abundance of peace till the moon shines no more. So we can see these petitions that he's asking here. First, he asks that you would give this king your judgments, O God, that your righteousness would be given to this king's son. Uh, One of the king's most important tasks was to make laws for the people and execute judgment for them on their behalf. And it takes a special wisdom for a king to do this that David recognizes. So he prays that this king would have this wisdom. This is very similar to what Solomon prayed for himself when he was uh, inaugurated as king. He says this in 1 Kings 3.9, so give your servant, that is me, your servant, the king, an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge such a great people? So Solomon recognize this need for God's uh, intervention to give him uh, of the ability to judge and to do righteousness among the people. Uh, David sees the same thing here in Psalm 2. For immediately after this, he asks God's righteousness and judgment. Uh, basically, he gives a reason for this knowledge, so that he may judge the people with righteousness and you're afflicted with justice. So why does David see this great need that God in some way intervened to give this king righteousness and judgment? so that he may judge your people with righteousness and you're afflicted with justice. The king's use of this righteousness and justice will be seen by how he treats who? What is sort of the the standard that David uses here to determine if this king's judgment is right? How he treats the afflicted, those who have no power, those who have no other recourse but to go to the king, who have nothing to offer the king in return. Those are the ones that are to be used to judge how this king's righteousness is to be used, how his judgment is to be displayed. Uh, People who live in poverty, uh, they suffer greatly from bad laws. Uh, It's often never asked, how will this hurt the poor? How will this hurt the oppressed? Often it's the wealthy who benefit from many of the laws and regulations that we have. Uh, We create lobbies today that, that, that push for laws that benefit certain sectors of society. Often they're, they're corporations, they're, they're government agencies, they're, they're rich, powerful groups of people, and the poor are, are very seldom considered. And David says, no, this king will be judged by how he treats the, unju- the, the poor, the weak, the unrepresented. Again, it's never asked, how do these laws hurt the poor? How do they affect them? Um, Often, again, it's the wealthy that benefit from these laws, regulations we create today, and often it pushes small businesses out of business or people who would like to start a business cannot start one. Uh, We watch cities burn while politicians applaud without considering the cost to the poor in those communities. Uh, There's nothing... That is, the poor can offer the king as well. Uh, Big business, corporations, government agencies, political groups, they have something to offer. They can line the pockets of the politicians with money uh, when judgments are made in their favor. But the poor have nothing to offer but their gratitude. So that's how the king's judgments will be guard will be tested by how they affect the poor. Will they consider, will he consider the poor with the laws and judgment that he makes? Uh, Keep in mind his judgment and righteousness has a source, and that source is the law of God. God doesn't want, he doesn't want God to just simply impart this to him. He has the law. It's written in the scriptures. It's been inscripturated, and what he's asking for is give the king wisdom in using this law. Every law he makes, whether it's a law for war, welfare, whether it's a law for the environment, whether it's criminal law, let him base his laws on the law of God, on the word that God has been given. 
Uh, what is needed by the king is to take the law of God and apply it in different circumstances that will arise in his kingdom. Uh, the moral law or the Ten Commandments, it, it just basically gives broad general commands. Do not murder. Uh, do not steal. Do not commit adultery. They're broad commands that can be applied in many different ways. And the king's job is to take those laws and apply them in different circumstances. And that takes a great deal of wisdom that David is asking God to give this king. Uh, for example, here's, here's one, I'm not taking a position on this, but here's one that, that people are wrestling with right now. Uh, the idea now that abortion has been out, not outlawed, but sent back to the states, the states now are debating. And there's two lines that are being drawn right now with regard to what do we do with women who've had abortion. One group says they're, they're victims. One group says they're murderers. Okay, well, what do we do with a woman who has had six, a middle, upper middle class woman who's had six abortions and is getting her seventh and gets her seventh? How do we treat that woman? Is she a victim? Or let's say there's a woman who, uh, a 15-year-old girl, uh, is, is impregnated, and she's pressured by her parents, uh, by her boyfriend, by her boyfriend's parents, by the school to get an abortion. Is she a murderer? If so, do we treat her the same way we treat the woman who's had her seventh abortion? So th th these are difficult things to wrestle through, and they're things that we have to wrestle with, and it's a thing that a king has to wrestle with. So David asks for special grace, special blessing upon his king to render judgments rightly, to make decisions that need to be made. And it's not enough that he just be just, just, just to the poor. Also, the oppressor, the oppressor must be crushed as well. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressors. It's not just enough for this king to judge rightly, to make a judgment in favor of the poor when judgment does need to go that way, when there's no benefit to him. He also has to crush the oppressor, the one who is taking advantage of the poor. His justice also carries out a penalty upon that oppressor. Much of the distress that the poor receive uh, from, is from oppressors. Those who know the poor, uh, they have no legal recourse. Uh, they have little education. Often they have very little common sense, and, and therefore they take advantage of them. They're easy to be taken advantage of. Uh, examples of this, Isaiah 3, uh, that says, The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you. Here's the judgment now, the, the condemnation that God has placed. On him. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. That was Israel's charge. They'd taken the possessions of the poor and their, their, their houses were filled with the poor's possessions. They took the poor and took their faces and grinded it into the ground. And God is bringing judgment against the nation of Israel for doing that. It continues in Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be, may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Again, what is Israel doing here? They're oppressing the poor. They're oppressing the helpless. And David says, this king, not only will we judge rightly and protect the poor, but he will bring justice to the oppressor, the one who oppresses the poor, also will see their fate. So there's two sides to this judgment. One, it helps the oppressor, uh, the, those who oppress, and it judges those who are oppressing them. 
Now, the next verse describes uh, the blessings that come to the people when they are judged by such a righteous king. What is the effect on the people when they have such a judge, when God blesses the judge in this way? It says, let them fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. When unjust laws are being made, people will lose their respect for their leaders. Only the wicked have abject fear of a righteous king. The righteous fear him out of honor and respect, not out of fear of some kind of a punishment. Uh, when the wicked have abject fear of a righteous king, uh, the, I'm, I'm sorry, only the wicked have abject fear of a righteous king. The righteous fear him out of honor and respect. Uh, Paul describes this very well in Romans 13. He says, for rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but for evil. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive the same. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for it, he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So for the righteous, they have no fear of, of punishment from their righteous king. There's a respect and honor that is called fear, but it's not the fear of the criminal, not the fear of the wicked. So there will be this fear, there will be this respect, this honor that the people have of such a righteous king. Peter says this as well, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Uh, these blessings continue to be described in these words. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In the days may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. Uh, the king's righteousness and justice are described as fresh rain coming down upon the grass. Those who live in subjection uh, to this king, uh, to his laws, that they flourish. And these words ha have powerful meaning as well. Uh, the idea of flourishing, Flourish is to sprout or break forth. Uh, uh, you children, your parents have gardens, right? Or you have gardens, and you ever plant a seed in your garden, and you go out and look at it, and first day there's nothing there. You go out the second day, there's nothing there. You go out the third day, little tiny green twig is sticking up through the ground, little, maybe this big. And you go out the next day, and what happens? Well, now it, it's, it's this big. And this big, it starts to get little leaves that go out this way. The next day, there, there's more leaves. And that, that's the idea of flourishing here, something to just growing and exceeding its boundaries. That's what the result of this king's reign is. People will flourish. They will grow. They will sprout. They will break forth. Uh, the word abundance is a word for wealthy. It's become numerous and large, uh, spreading out over a wide area. And the word peace is a word uh, that, that should be known to us. It's the word shalom. And it's very difficult to translate this into one English word, but it has the idea of harmony, wholeness, uh, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. Uh, it's a state that man lives in when his life is under the authority and control of the will of God. When man and God are in harmony, there is shalom. And it's brought about by this, in abundance by this king when he is ruling in righteousness. It gives you the sense that, that this king will, will bring harmony between God and man, not just bring a, a physical prosperity, but there'll be a spiritual harmony between God and man when this king rules and when he's given the right and the wisdom to judge. Uh, we find this very same language of harmony and blessing in uh, 1 Samuel 23. Uh, David says this, and this is significant because this is probably David's last psalm right here. 
And what I'm reading here is David's last psalm on his deathbed. This is what David sang on his deathbed. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What a beautiful description of a righteous king's reign. Think of a parched, dry ground. We had rain yesterday in Garland. Uh, how beautiful it was to, to hear that rain come down, to know that, that it's nourishing the earth, that grass that we've been so desperately trying to keep alive is now finally going to be nourished and grow which means I've got to mow it, but nevertheless. That's the idea here. When this righteous king comes, things flourish like rain coming down on a parched, dead ground. Beautiful, beautiful description. Again, it's significant that Psalm 72 is the last of the Psalms of David, and what David sang here was the very last words. He said, I love the, I think the, what's he calls him, the, the sweet psalmist of Israel, he calls him there as he sings that last psalm. So summary, this first petition is that God would give this king his judgments and his righteousness so that he would be a a good judge, a righteous judge to the people of the land, and that land would be blessed, and they would have peace and harmony with themselves, with nature, and with God. Now, verse 8 through 11 is the second part of this prayer, and it is a prayer of the king's dominion, his reign. How much honor does this king deserve? Is this peace, is this prosperity going to be limited to those who David rules over or those who Solomon rule over, or will it be a more extensive reign? In other words, uh, where will this peace be established? What will be the dominion of this peace? And again, it goes well beyond Israel. Just listen to the words here as I read this. This is verses 8 through 11. May he, may he rule also rule from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. <coughs> Let all the nations bow down before him. <coughs> Excuse me, all the nations serve him. So how limited is this king's reign? It's unlimited. There's no limitation to it whatsoever. Um, again, Solomon probably, his reign probably covered, was the largest in the history of Israel. First uh, Kings 4.12 says, Solomon rules over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates, that, that would be the, uh, the western, northwestern part of the kingdom, the Philistines, which would be the eastern part of the kingdom, to the border of Egypt, which would be the southeastern part of the kingdom. I'm sorry, west, I'm not things right. East would be the uh, Assyria, and west would be the uh, Phoenicians, and northwest would be the, southwest would be Egypt. So it was a rather large kingdom, but this goes far beyond that domain. The idea of the sea, from the sea to the sea, uh, it's endless, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and beyond any sea after that. Uh, From the rivers to the ends of the earth, probably a reference to the Euphrates River, from that river all the way as far as the earth goes is how far this king's dominion is going to be. Then it talks about some of the people that he will rule over. He lists the nations and the people that will submit to him. Uh, The nomads of the desert. Nomads were a a very wild, uncontrolled people. They basically traveled uh, from one place to the other. They had no king, uh, no rulers, no authority. They were a a tribal group that was ruled by elders. Uh, It says these men will come and they will bow down. These wild people will come and bow down before this king. 
Uh, his enemies will lick his dust. Words normally used for hostile nations who out of fear will come and submit to the king. It speaks of uh, Tarshish. We really don't know where Tarshish is. Some people think it's in northern Assyria. Uh, the islands are, are the coastlands in the western Mediterranean. Uh, Sheba and Seba were most likely Ethiopia and Yemen. And this, as far as Israel is concerned, were the outer parts of their world. Uh, but it says it goes far beyond that, well beyond these nations. Uh, much like the Queen of Sheba herself, uh, the, the, she comes out of a, a desire to honor him. She's heard of his reputation and comes out of respect. Uh, it's not a forced tribute here, but it's out of respect she comes. Other nations will be forced to pay tribute to him based on his power, his control over them. Again, let all the kings bow down before him, all the nations serve him. So this dominion of this king is a worldwide dominion. All the kings, all the nations, all the people will serve this king and bow down before him. So it's not strictly limited to Israel or even a surrounding area, but a worldwide dominion that this king will have. So in summary, we have two general petitions here. First, that the king would give, be given a special ability to judge righteously. He would have God's judgment and use those judgment to care for the poor, for the oppressed, those who are needy. The second petition, again, is that this blessing, it would be limitless. It would be beyond the realms of the current world as far as the sea goes, as far as the earth goes beyond the river. Uh, this king will have homage, he will have respect, he will have dominion. Now, the next question is, what makes this king so worthy of these honors? Why should he receive such honors? David sees certain qualities in this king that will move God to act on his behalf and grant him the righteousness and the authority to rule over the whole world. And we're changing here, in a sense, from, from petition to description. David here is describing this king. What are these qualities? Well, there are three. First, he will deliver the needy when they cry for help. In verse 12, for he will deliver the needy when they cry for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him, and let them pray continually for him and bless him all day long. So the idea here is that he's worthy of this respect, of this honor, because of, first of all, the way he treats the poor, those who cry out to him, those who are weak, those who are needy, uh, he will help them. Uh, the reason for this is that he has compassion upon them. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and their lives, uh, the needy, he will save. Uh, th there's a pity here for the poor and needy um, that God has. That causes him to act. He's not responding out of some a cold, calculated, analytical logic or reasoning. There's an actual uh, a sense of need that he has in his heart for these people that causes him to act. His heart is moved to react and to save and to redeem those who are needy. Uh, there's an emotional element here. Uh, where one is really, truly concerned about the fate of another one. You're, you're concerned for your children. It's not because, well, I bear the relationship of a father and son to him, and therefore, as a father, logically, I must protect my son. 
No, that's not how we think about our children. There, there's a compassion, there's a pity, there, there's a sense of, of his need for me and me needing to help him that is strong and powerful in a parent's heart. That's the idea here. These people are precious in his sight and he will react to save them, to redeem them, and to help them. Again, an emotional element here. This is used, this word here uh, is used when God speaks to Jonah. He says, and the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals. So this idea of compassion here is what moved God to send Jonah to Nineveh to save these people. And this is not bare empathy. Empathy has its place, but it's used in a modern context simply to help somebody until you feel better. Uh, it doesn't, it's not really concerned about doing what is right, but simply relieving whatever feelings you have about something until you feel better. For example, uh, you drive down a road and you see a person that's um, begging on the side of the road, and you hand that person a couple dollars, and you feel you've done well, right? You, you kind of, yeah, I, I really helped this guy. Well, if that guy takes that money and goes and buys liquor with it and gets drunk, have you really helped him? No, what God is speaking of here is a help that really helps these people. He knows exactly, precisely what they need, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to give them that, to do that for them. Not simply as we use empathy, just to relieve whatever distress I have about a situation that I see. There's a real sense of, of a desire to help and an ability to help them, whatever the need actually is. Uh, the word rescue here, he rescues the needy, is the word redeemed. It's the word used to describe uh, Boaz's action on behalf of Ruth. This word is used uh, dozens of times in the book of Ruth. Uh, Boaz saves her from poverty, from destitution. Uh, he restores her inheritance. He just doesn't give her a handful of grain and say, go away and come back tomorrow, and I'll give you another handful of grain. Just keep begging, and I'll take care of you each day. No, he, he does something that truly helps her. He, he goes as far as marriage. Her. He restores her inheritance in a way that uh, at great cost uh, to him himself. Uh, often we like to blame uh, poor for their plight, and that is sometimes is the case. But Ruth, it was not that case. Uh, she had no control over her circumstances. Her fate was not in her own hands. She was helpless and in the, at the complete mercy of another one. She truly what was needy and oppressed. And Boaz responds out of compassion to her, to redeem her. The king responds very much like Boaz responded to Ruth, out of compassion he is moved by to help her. Uh, this section ends with the reason why he acts. Why does he act this way? Well, these beautiful words, their blood is precious in his sight. It, it, they're worth something to him. Not just a monetary value, but there's a preciousness. The blood here is just a, another word for life. Uh, their life is precious to him. He had, they have value to him, and they're worth saving. Again, history is full of examples of kings and rulers uh, bleeding their subject to fill their own purses, uh, to satisfy their own wicked desires, but, but this king does no such thing. They're not there just to serve him for his benefit. They're actually precious in his sight. One commentator says this, in the eyes of this king, even the nobodies will be precious. 
In verse 15, the psalmist turns back to petition and now asks for blessings for this king. It's almost an emotional, ecstatic response when he considers all that this king is going to do, all that he is worthy of, all the ways that God is going to bless him. He, He turns back to God and now offers praise for this king. In light of all that he does, how he has compassion for the poor, uh, how he helps them, how he saves them, redeems them, the fact that their blood is precious in his king's sight, all this drives a psalmist to return and make a final group of petitions. And this says again, the king petitions that the Lord blesses the king and his subjects. So may he live and may the gold of Sheba be given to him and let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. May, he be, may there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit wave like the cedars of Lebanon and may those from the city flourish like vegetation on the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. Let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. So he's calling down these blessings upon this great king. Again, there may be abundance of grain in the earth, top of the mountains. Uh, These blessings are not just uh, a general prosperity uh, where the people are just blessed in a physical way. It's not some like a a Vulcan greeting, uh, live long and prosper. There's much more to this prosperity than simply meets the eye. And what David's doing here is he's mentioning the covenant blessings that God promises to Israel if they uphold and if they keep his covenant. Remember Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 13, excuse me for that long passage here, but it describes perfectly what God is going to do for his people under the covenantal blessings if they obey. And what he's saying here is that these blessings that he's talking about are those very same blessings that God is going to convey on his people when when they keep, when they obey his covenant. In Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 13, and because you listen to the rules or my judgments and keep them, the Lord your God will multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the land he swore to your fathers to give you. He shall bless you above all people. This idea of their their grain swaying like the cedars of Lebanon, growing even on the cold, hard mountaintops is a description of great blessing that Moses is describing for the people here. Deuteronomy 28, he says this, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be when you come in. Blessed you shall be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. What does this king do? He makes his enemies lick his dust, lick the dust. They shall come out against you on the way and flee before you seven ways. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your livestock and the fruit of your ground within the land the Lord God swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord God will open up his good treasury in the heavens and give the rain to your land in its season and bless all the work of your hands. What is being described here by David? These covenantal blessings. So what this king is going to do when God gives him this grace is he's going to bring the blessings of Israel, the blessings that Israel could never earn themselves. Every time Israel tried to obey, every time they tried to keep the covenant, what happened? 
they failed. So much so that they were ejected from the land, vomited out of the land, the great judgment that God promised them. If you do not keep my commandments, I will throw you out of the land and you will be spread among the nations. They could never do that. Now here he's saying this king, when he rules, he will bring those blessings to the people of Israel. They will finally have the covenantal blessings. Verse 17, we see another aspect of the covenant God made with his people. Another aspect of those blessings. May his name endure forever. May his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. There's two different petitions here. First, may his name endure forever and his fame continue as long as the sun. What does that sound like? May his name endure forever. What cluster of promises are centered around having a leader, a king, a ruler who will reign forever? What about those God gave to David in 1 Samuel chapter 7? It says this, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In those three or four short verses, what do we keep hearing? Forever, 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 never ending. What blessing is David asking upon his king? Again, that he live forever. May your name endure forever. May his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations calling him blessed. So his fame will know no end. It will continue as long as there is a sun. Second petition is this, let all men bless themselves by him. Let all the nations call him blessed. What does that sound like? What cluster of blessings in the covenant is centered around the nations being blessed? Is that the promise God made to Abraham? What was the promise he made to him? When he, way back when he was still Abram. back to Genesis 12, 2 through 3, of the initial promise made to Abram when he was still in the land. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here David is calling on God to bless all of the nations through this king. All people will be blessed. What does that go back to? Well, it goes back to that initial promise that God made to Abraham, that through you, through one of your descendants, all the nations will be blessed. This is that descendant that God promises people. The covenant promises come through his eternal reign, a perpetual king, and the fact that he will establish the blessing. So David um, is basically tying the blessings that this, that this king receives to the covenantal blessings that God makes to his people, not only the Israelites, but this goes out through all the world. These blessings are spread Everywhere, not just to a nation, all of the world, the Israelites and the Gentiles as well. Now, from here, where, where do we go? What does David do next? Well, pretty much all he can do here is just offer a doxology. Now, what is a doxology? It's just a, a, a spontaneous praise to God. He offers God praise. Now, realizing what this great king is going to do, how God is going to bless him, how through him he's going to bless all the nations of the earth, 
all he can basically do is offer a praise to God. And this is something that was done quite a bit. Paul does it a lot. Uh, Many of the books, Paul ends with a doxology. uh, To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. These are doxologies that Paul tacks on to his letters. Uh, There there are times where Paul becomes so overworked by what he's saying, by what he's saying, that in the middle of a, a paragraph, he'll offer a doxology. For example, um, in Romans 11, when he's talking about the great mystery of Israel's salvation, had God has taken the Gentiles or taken Israel and, and pushed them aside and hardened them. And now he's brought the Gentiles in to bring salvation to them. But that's only temporary. God, once again, will bring the Israelites back. And once that happens, all of the world will be saved. That The salvation will be universal at that point. All of God's work and effort will be done on behalf of mankind. In the middle of all that, when he realizes the greatness of all that, what it means, he says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment, how inscrutable his ways. From him, from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He does the same thing in his second prayer for the Ephesians. Uh, he says that the goal of his prayer is that the church be filled with all the fullness of God. And that idea of, of filling the church with all the fullness of God uh, causes him to launch into another doxology. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we see how Paul, at times of writing, he's so overwhelmed with the power, with the grace, with the wisdom of God that he stops what he's doing and offers a doxology and praise to the God who he's speaking of. And that's what David does here. After he's finished describing this king and the blessings that he's going to bring about, how he will fulfill the covenants of God, the promises of God's covenant. He offers this doxology. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of the David of David, son of Jesse, are ended. So the very last words that David adds to the Psalms are this brilliant, this beautiful doxology, the thought of God fulfilling his covenant promises through this great king causes him to burst forth in a doxology. Again, this is an intense, deeply emotional response to the reality of the covenants finally, completely being fulfilled in this king. Now, I'm sure when I started this sermon, when I, when I said that this was never used in the, Old Te- in the New Testament, a lot of you probably had the question, well, how are you going to preach Christ if, he's, if it's never used in the New Testament? How do you preach Christ from it? Well, we've seen how we do it, don't we? These hooks, these words, these phrases, these ideas go back into the Old Testament and pull them forward into this time. The promises to Abraham are brought forth and pulled into this book. The promises to David also are taken and brought into this psalm. David has these on his mind as he's praying this psalm, as he's offering these prayers and these petitions to God. And as we go up to the New Testament, they pretty much do the same thing. They take it, maybe not the exact words, maybe not close, but they take the very same ideas and show how they are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ at the end times. Not just the end times, but 
but during the time of Christ's life on earth, during this time right now, and as well as in the future, how all of these things are currently being fulfilled by this king that is being described here. So let's go up, let's go back to Isaiah, uh, up to Isaiah. Isaiah would be further along, a couple hundred years beyond this. Uh, Isaiah describes this idea of the, the Lord having this king who rules over all of the world. Let's, I'll jump there real quick and read it. I didn't cut it and put it in my notes, but I want to read the, give you an idea of what it says. Isaiah chapter 2. To me, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. I, I just love Isaiah chapter 2. It's titled, God's Universal Reign. It says, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about in the last days The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will rise above the hills, and the nations will stream to it, and many people will come. So imagine that there's a a massive hill, mountain, with a city on it, and there's all these roads, these highways going out from that one hill to the different nations around the world. And you look at it, and what do you see? You see people just streaming flowing like a river to this king, to this nation, to this mountain. What are they coming for? What is their purpose? What do they want from this king? Many people will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. From the law will go forth from Zion and the word of God from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many people. What is David praying for this king? That God will give him the ability to judge. Here he is judging all the nations. All the nations are flowing to him. And what is he doing? He's making judgments on behalf of those nations. He will render decisions for many people, and here's the result of his judgments. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now this is is chiseled in the side of the United Nations building, I believe in Brussels, or maybe it's New York. And uh, there couldn't be a greater mockery of this verse than that. Who's going to bring this about? This king. How is he going to bring it about? By instructing the nations, the nations that are willingly submitting to him and listening to what he says, them hearing his words, taking his judgment, and going back and executing their judgment. That's how war will cease. So here we see a beautiful illustration, a beautiful fulfillment of what David is speaking of here. Nations coming from all over the world, uh, to give reverence to him and to take his law and apply it. Another example of this, we jump to Revelation. Uh, He says, I saw no temple in it. This is Revelation, I think, 22. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for light or moon or to shine in it. For the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Uh, The nations will walk by its light. Reference all the way back to Isaiah 2. What are they doing? They're listening to his truth, applying it. Here they are walking by that light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory of the honor and honor and the nations into it. What is this a description of? This very same king in Psalm 72. What do the nations do? They honor 
they glorify, they all bow down to him. Here we see this, all this activity occurring in the person of Christ, occurring to his reign and his rule. Uh, the river of life uh, that's in this city in Revelation, it says, the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So here's the Lamb sitting on his throne in this city, and a river, a bright crystal river is flowing from that throne. Again, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, uh, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So here's another, a beautiful example at the close of the scriptures of the nations serving Christ, of him instructing them, this great river flowing from the city, flowing from his throne, called the river of life, feeding the nations, uh, teaching them, instructing them, healing them, and them obeying and submitting to him. And the result, there's no longer any curse. Nothing is accursed anymore. So a beautiful fulfillment in Christ of what David is talking about in Psalm 72. This king will receive the honor of the nations. They will listen to him. They will obey him. And they will serve him on a universal scale. Uh, If we look at how this speaks about how this great king will help the poor and oppressed, those will be the primary objects of his pity and his love and compassion are the the poor and oppressed. Uh, Do we not see that? Uh, brought about in the person of Christ. When he walked this earth, who was it that followed him? Who were the people that, that seemed to have been drawn to him the most? What was it the wealthy? What was it the Pharisees? No, it, it was simply the poor and the weak. Uh, the oppressed were the ones who came to Jesus. They were the ones who were interested in what he had to say. Uh, the Pharisees, uh, they wanted to argue with him. They wanted to fight, by, fight with him. Uh, some of the rich people came to him at night. They didn't want to be seen with him. But it was the poor that tended to flock around him and listen to him. Uh, the Pharisees, uh, the tax gatherers, those who were ostracized and hated by society were the ones who came to Christ. Uh, what, what Brother Dan read today from Isaiah 50, or 55, who was it that he's crying out to to come drink water? You who are needy, who have no money to buy bread or wine or water, those are the ones who came to Christ, who listened to him, who gave attention to him. And when we we get to the end of Scripture and and we see the city coming down, when we see Christ setting up his city in the new heavens and new earth, what is the first thing that Christ does when he sits on the earth, when he sets everything up and begins his reign? What's the first thing he does? Now keep in mind that the oppressors have been thrown out. They're not in the city anymore. They're, They're in judgment. They're in a lake of fire. Uh, The oppressors, the wicked, the adulterers, uh, the dogs, those are outside of the city and will never be let in. But what does he do to the oppressors? He says he wipes away every tear from their eye. That's the first thing he does is he takes away their tears. He takes away the reason for pain, the reason for sorrow, the reason for crying. The very first thing, hear his words, and I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first earth First heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And again, the first thing he does, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. What a beautiful fulfillment of what is said in Psalm 72 about how he cares for the oppressor, how he saves those who are needy. He helps, he redeems, he rescues the helpless. Here we see him doing the very first thing he does and the final act mentioned in scripture that he does is removes the curse, removes the pain, removes the sorrow of all those who are suffering. So again, there's much more, brethren, we could go into. This psalm, it's just filled with meaning about Christ. It's, once you see that those, connect, make that connection between the covenant promises and what's mentioned here, uh, meaning just flows in and out of it. It's so clear that this is the person of Christ. And, and it's clear uh, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, uh, his sovereignty, his judgment, his wisdom, all of that just flows out of this passage, hopefully into our hearts. And those of us who, who serve him, who love him, who have bound down before him. We have these promises. They're ours. We will be blessed. These are not necessarily physical blessings, but the spiritual blessings of, of being redeemed, of being saved, being delivered. They're ours. We will be with him in that kingdom. We will be those who, who bow down along the king of Sheba and Sheba, uh, among the princes of Tarshish. We will be with those people. We will be with the people from the coastlands. And the nomads of the desert, all of us will be bowing down before him, serving him and obeying him throughout all of eternity, having every tear wiped away from our eye. But those who don't, who are his enemies, then there's reason to fear. This is not just a, a king who's nice, okay, who, who likes to get along. No, he, he's got a will, he's got a purpose, he's got a law. And when that law is not kept, you are his enemies, and if you are still separate from Christ, if you think that you can do whatever it needs to be done by yourself, if you've turned away from him and said, no, I, I can believe Jesus is a good person, I can believe he's a nice man, but I don't need anything about this, him being a savior for me, where I can't contribute anything to my salvation. If that's your, your viewpoint, then you are his enemy. Because you're taking his place, he is your savior. And if you deny that, then you deny everything else about him. And you're an enemy. But he's also gracious. Anyone can turn. Anyone who comes to him. Anyone who calls upon him. He says he will in no wise cast out. He's even gracious to his enemies. When his enemies turn to him and believe in him and bow to him, he willingly accepts them into his heart. They become precious in his sight. So you can be an enemy one minute and the moment you submit to him and cry out to him in need, he promises that you will no longer be his enemy. Now you are an object of his compassion. And he will deliver you and, and save you from that fate. You will be brought in to that city. He will wipe every tear away from your eye. There's probably not one human being here who has not, not gone some type, through some type of sadness, some type of sorrow, some type of grief. And that is because of sin. Sin does that to us. It, it makes the world a horrible place at times. In fact, it makes it a horrible place most times. But he promises to remove that from us. 
if we come to him, if we bow down to him, if we simply believe him, like the, the man hawking water in the street, Dan read about, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. I will make promises and fulfill them to you that are beyond your wildest imagination. That's what Christ offers. That's what this king offers to us. A salvation that is beyond anything we could ever imagine. And if we bow down to him, if we serve him, obey him, he's more than willing to look at us in, as precious in his sight. So brethren, I hope you've been encouraged by this today. Again, rather difficult psalm. I hope as you read through your Bible and you hit Psalm 72 next year, this year, whatever it is, that you'll see something about Christ in here. You'll see the connections that hopefully I made clear to you today. And if you're a person who doesn't know Christ, I'd plead with you to come to him. Believe in him. If you have questions, talk to me, talk to one of the elders. Anybody could either talk to you about it or give you direction to somebody who can talk to you. But don't go away here without considering this great, mighty king. Let us pray. Our Father, we are indeed humbled by the scripture that we've heard today. Despite the lack of skill the preacher, we trust that your spirit has taken this word and made it real to your people and that you'd make it real to those who don't know him, Father, who are not your people but are outside of Christ. So bless these words, Father. Bless the people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.